What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Vibeka Skov all the way from Bredston in Denmark. Vibeka is a psychologist, a Jungian. She's involved with art therapy. She's written six books. Uh, we're going to talk today about the mind, about Carl Jung, about depression, and about shame. It's a lot to cover, Vibeka. Do you think we can do it? We can try. <laughs> we can try. So how did you get into the work that you're doing right now and what is that work? Well, I started 32 years ago with a program in art therapy here in Denmark and based on Jungian thinking and his thoughts about development and we we combine his theories with practical art expression and we we just try to see how that goes well with personal development. How did it start? I had a teacher here in Denmark who was yeah, Jungian and my own dream analyst 40 years ago and that brought me into combining my interest for art and psychology. Hmm. For someone who's not familiar with Carl Jung, how can you extract, how, how would you extract the key ideas of Jungian thinking in a way that's practical for somebody? I think one of the main also challenges using Jung and psychology in a practical way is to become free from living up to so many outer expectations to who you are and what you should do with your life and so forth. You know, depression is sometimes, it's often related to not being able to live up to those expectations and you have a disappointments and inner judgments and so forth so that you feel you are just the wrong person in life and i think jung has an he has a, a lot of experience in how to deal with the inner life in order to become stronger in your own self and become more free from outer expectations mm. I love that phrase that you can sometimes feel that you're the wrong person in life. Is that something yeah. that you felt over the years? Yeah. Yeah, I also felt it during my PhD study, actually, because I had already been, you know, in the field for so many years before I started my PhD, and I felt completely stupid in the academic world again after so many years in doing practical work, and I felt that there was some, you know, shaming going on in that, you have to know the answer before you speak and, you know, you can't be creative in the process and, you know, find some answers from the dialogue. You had to, you know, be strong before you even open your mouth. And I think that got me onto the track of shame. You know, I, I could see from my research also that all the women I had there, they, they were... They had a lot of strong inner judgments going on that, that made you know their life miserable in a way. And where does that judge come from? That, well, that, that's what I was going to ask you is, you know, with all the research that you've done, is that loud inner voice, that self-judgment, before we get on to other people, is that just built into us as humans? No, it comes from outside. You know... There's a guy called Tompkins who worked with, with shame thinking. He say that when we are most joyful and interested in life, we are open to, to feel shame when somebody from outside come and make us feel wrong. So it starts from that 
upbringing period where we we have to adjust to social life and to what others expectations and then you know if that is too much if that becomes very powerful and very repeatedly overwhelming for a child you the child begins to feel you know something is wrong with me and i i can't do what they want me to do and feel good about it so it's all coming from the outside and then it becomes an inner voice you know you we, we copy that those other outer voices and they become part of who we think about uh, you know in our own self we forget that they came from the outside so i think this is part of the development to get them to get these voices back out of our head and where did they actually come from in the beginning so carl jung's renowned for studying a lot of different populations around the world mm. the dynamics that we're talking about now as far as people getting judged and being taught that they're wrong does that mm. exist everywhere has it always existed well i think cultures have different judgments i mean every culture have though have a you know social rules social paradigms codes that some things are allowed in one society and not in others and i think we need shame let's place that right you know we need to to be able to feel shame because that's the way we socialize otherwise we have a shameless amount of people who who are just completely chaotic together because nobody is ashamed of anything so they just get wild in chaos so we need a certain amount of shame in order to be together as a social group and in within that social group there are that you know judgments or rules of behavior that you either you adapt to them or you react to them and so you know you can have the conflicts there but i think all societies have different shame paradoxes mm. you know yeah it's, it's an interesting thought that shame helps us maintain social connection and social yeah. bonds yes. but it can also hurt us really really badly how, how do you navigate that Yeah well you only navigate it when you get aware of it you know when you have some consciousness of it which is also difficult because most shame is actually in the unconscious but when you become conscious of it or it just is part of who you think you are well then you 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 can work with it and you can start healing shame you can talk to other people you can you know go to therapy you can try to get out of the pattern of shame but if you if you don't think that shame is has anything to do with you it kind of operates anyway but without you can you can't do anything about it it's just directing your behavior and you can't navigate it because mm. it's unconscious i know you've heard this question many times but uh, i'm going to ask you some questions that you've heard before how do we know the unconscious is real well because it projects itself to the outside i mean this was one of jung's but he really found out that we not only do we have a personal unconscious mind or psyche we have a collective unconscious psyche that kind of connects us to each other all over the world i mean which is our humanity you know we all know a witch and we know a mother and we know a father we know all the archetypes all the the big symbols that we can grow from if we connect to to uh, different symbols than we grow up with if my mother was 
bad mother for me. I, I have to find a positive mother in order to become better with myself, you know, and I can't find it in the personal life. I have to go somewhere else to another culture or to a myth or to a, another symbol. Or... So the unconscious, it comes out in artwork, for example. You see all the inner life developing there often with mm. many surprises coming forward. Where does it come from? Where does this symbol come from? It must come from me because it was I who painted it. But in the psychological sense, where does it come from if it's not something I know of already? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, that would be a symbol of the unconscious, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned depression earlier. What is depression? Well, the group I worked with were not diagnosed with depression, so they had symptoms of depression. But a depression is characterized if you are in a low mood for more than 14 days, for example. Then you have signs of depression, and if it lasts longer, you can have more chronic you know, periods of depression, mm. which is really self-judgmental. It's a self-judgmental state, and you... You, you, you don't have the activity to act in life. You have to, for example, you, you can't get out of bed in the morning or you you can't do what is what you need to do to be in a cycle with life. You have no masculine energy, you can say. Your feeling for living life is low. Well, these, these are all signs of depression, but it often starts with stress. You know, you run too fast and you, you don't accomplish everything you want to accomplish and, and finally you may burn out and you that leads to depression and you have these patterns of developing depression. Mm. So there's an interesting irony there that you can run too fast and burn out. And then for some people, for some, not all, and a lot of people feel very individual in their mental health. So it's difficult to, you know, I personally wouldn't want to make sweeping comments about it because every time I've, I've, I've made little comments about it on the internet, people are like, you don't know me, I'm, I'm unique. <laughs> um, but there's an irony there around running too fast, you can burn out, that can lead some people to depression. But then from what I hear, you need some kind of activity to help you get out of depression. Yeah. So what is it about those two types of activities, the running too fast for no particular reason maybe versus the activity that can help some people navigate their way through it? Well, I think this is one of Jung's also points is that we have inside a self-regulation. We, we are able to regulate our own system. And so if we run too fast and we can't consciously decide to slow down and, and take better care of ourselves and so forth, then the body will take over and just stop your activity so that you, you have to slow down. You know, you don't decide it, but the body decides it for you because it, it regulates your whole system to be becoming better balanced. So it's about understanding depression as a sign of having you know, run too fast and make the right decisions to organize your life better and in better harmony with who you are and so forth. Mm -hmm. And how do people work out who they are? Well, they have to work with the unconscious because we are only conscious of a so little, such a small part of who we really are and, you know, what we are capable of. How do you understand yourself? Who are you? <laughs> who am I? Well... Well, you can define yourself in so many ways, in 
what you do. For example, I can define as well. I'm a psychologist, I'm an artist, I did and I did. But who am I is an inner feeling of being in touch with what I want and how I want to eat and, you know, to have a flexible understanding of life. And that's what I like in life. I like to eat when I'm hungry. I like to walk when I want to walk. You know, I want to decide things for myself in life. I don't want to do all my activities that they should be for someone else. I, I want to have a feeling of I do this because I decide to do it. Mm-hmm. And I like to do it. I enjoy doing it. And then with all the research and the writing that you've done, does that get in the way of you living at all or does it help you live? Well, it gives me a reason to live, doesn't it? I mean, I have to do something in order to circulate who am who am I? But so I, I usually find a new story to work with. These days, I'm I'm up to Parsifal. The story of Parsifal, I think, is really talking to me now. And I suppose I'll work with that for a while, and then I'll find another story. I mean, it gives my life a certain meaning. You know, something I'm interested in, and I, I try it out with my students and. You know, we circulate with that for a while and then there's another story that shows another aspect to life and, you know, I mean, you have to do something. I, I love that thought. Like, I've, I've read a little bit. I'm not studied in, in the space. Definitely haven't written a books about it. But the just that clean sentence you said of you just have to find a new story to work with, that's beautiful. When did you realize that? When When did that become an epiphany to you and then when did you start to work out how to use that because it's like a muscle but you have to realize that a story is not working for you anymore and then replace it and then commit to it and then that might die as well like what was your personal journey with that particular idea well i think it goes back 40 years when i found i discovered i read Eric neumann's book the story of Emma and psyche that was my first opening to stories Emo and Saiga, and I, I, I think I spent seven years just, you know, reflecting on how my life was mirrored in that story. Mm. And so my first book was about Emo and Saiga, and I, I began to use it with other people, and I used it to describe creativity and the patterns of creativity, and my own life became part of, you know, you can identify with Saiga, where she is in the story, and, and I can look at the story and see what would be next step for me, what, what can I try and look at it as the next how to continue not to get stuck in a certain pattern hmm. and I think I use stories like that interesting and then you know I know Carl Jung had a I read that he had a period of listlessness and then he committed himself to more art in his life more artistic expression yeah, yeah. is this something that you think is universal can we prove that it's universal obviously you've dedicated a lot of your life to to this is there science to support it well Jung said we had a, a creative drive as a human Freud called it sublimation but you know Jung had a completely different view to creativity that and I think his whole process of individuation is a creative process. I mean, you don't have to paint in order to be creative. You are, you are creating your own life, and you can do that through arts, through the arts, because that always comes first, isn't it? You create something, and you learn from it, and that's the creative cycle. You, you have to make the projection first, you know, to something outside of you, and then you can bring that reflection back to you and learn and you grow from that that's creative 
So it's the archetype of creative patterns, isn't it? To first manifest something and then take it back. Creativity. Mm. What is creativity to you? Well, you express things, but you also remember to you can you can learn from what you express if you remember to to think about it. You know, you can express and express and express and never think about it, but you can also mm. express something and reflect. What does that say about me? This I expressed. I just come from a group here where where we work with projections and what they have on each other, and you know, one person say to the other, "You are abuser." And then, you know, you can think the other person is abusing or stepping over my borders or so forth, but it's really, you know, you have to take back that projection, otherwise it gets stuck. And so the other person may become an abuser because that's what you expect from the other person, but to see yourself as also having an, an ability to abuse someone else is really, that's where you grow. You see the, the abusing other in the other person first, and then you can reflect, what does that tell about myself? Okay, okay. Uh, and then going back to the idea of, of being who you are, becoming who you are, and is it a Jungian term, individuation? Yeah, it is. For a lot of people who are new to, uh, basically saying new instead of young, but younger people in the creative industries, you know, they're often under a lot of pressure, working long hours, maybe paying off big college debt, especially in America. They're trying to chase job titles. Maybe they don't have good healthcare or healthcare at all unless they have a mm. job. There's not a lot of a safety net and they're climbing and climbing and competing and competing. And then they hit these life phases where they're like, hang on, this doesn't feel right. And that can last a long time. Mm. And when I've read about individuation, apparently... Well, could you explain what it is and then how does it happen? Well, f within the Jungian psychology, there is a, a developmental aspect to individual, a concept of individuation, which is Ford and Neumann. Some people, Jungians, they think that we start the individuation process from birth and then something can happen in life like trauma. We are shocked by some life experiences and that can stop the process of individuation so that we are no longer connected to what Jung calls the self in us. We, we, we lose that connection and then we have a, a neurosis or we have a problem in life or we, we go to therapy and we try to heal those traumatic experiences in order to get back to who we really are and, and to reconnect to that part in us that Jung calls the self. Because individuation really means to unfold who you are. And the problem is that if we forget to to listen to who we are inside, we live up to outer expectations, as you know, where I started with, and then we lose that connection. So individuation it means to come back on track to to who you you really are as an individual. Hmm. How does one learn to listen to how they are? I mean, you've mentioned art and expressing and paying attention to what comes out, and you've mentioned the the collective and the individual unconscious, but what are, what are other practical ways that people can relearn how to listen to themselves? Well, you know, when we dream, we are in another reality. We can walk on the moon and we can do all kinds of things in dreams and we think it's real when we dream, isn't it? We don't think in the dream, this is, the only, this is just a dream. That's what we say when we wake up. So I think to 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 start in a practical way, we have to 
go back to that reality that 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 belongs to the unconscious to try to look at dreams and ask what are they telling me you know our dreams they have some messages coming mm. from the unconscious so working with dreams is really well that, that was one of, of Jung's major aspects of how to interact with the unconscious is to write down dreams paint dreams reflect on dreams trying to understand the language and what is the message and you know all kinds of so i think dreams is one aspect and then the, the creative process you know to to trust that expressing yourself from the body more than from just what you already know in the mind is is also a way to discover something new that you didn't know was inside you but you found out through the creative process and you know there are rituals you can you can you can like dance and allow the body to explore movements and there are other many you know therapeutic methods like dance therapy drama therapy there's art therapy there's music therapy there are so many mm. creative media that you can use that fits you you know individual you can choose your favorite media to express yourself through and well i have glass and i have painting and i used a lot of clay and i, I like to change you know i have periods where i paint and then i have periods where i do glass and they all talk to each other the media so mm-hmm. i think it's that's a practical jung's practical method was active imagination you you talk to that reality you you paint a tiger and you ask questions to the tiger who are you where do you come from and the tiger will answer you and say i come from the jungle and i want to say this and this and this to you you know and you have all this information coming from figures in the unconscious and i think that's the fun part of mm. you know practical work okay so let's chat shame what is it and at what point does somebody know it's not useful to them well, what it is, shame is an experience of of not having any value as the person you are. So the difference from shame and guilt, for example, is in, in guilt you, you do something wrong and you can go to church and say, I'm sorry and God will forgive you and everything is fine. But if you feel shame, you can't change it like that. It goes much deeper because it connects to your individuality and your life center mm-hmm. so if that center is you know wrong in some human human way it's it's really bad and you you it's very difficult to heal just like that you you really have to well prepare the healing i have a whole ritual about how to heal shame because you, you to confront shame just like that is you you are in a risk of re-traumatizing yourself from that confrontation if you are unprepared hmm. what well, are there common types of shame that people bring to you common types well there are shames on different levels you know you can have social shame and psychological shame and physical bodily related shame and you can have a spiritual shame in relationship to god or some higher being so i think there are different kinds of shame and it depends on where you experience the trauma you know how old you were and who was there and what happened Mm. 
so how do you how do you work with somebody through that? I, I know you mentioned the ritual, but like how how do you spend constructive time with people to help them work through their shame? Well, in, in my program, art therapy program, we spent two weeks on that. I used the Nana story, Nana, you know, Nana's descent to the underworld and her coming back as a, an image of shame healing so that the preparation phase means that you have to understand what is shame and you have to maybe study it and to know about it in a more collective way or general way so that you know what you're going into when you start you know, healing shame and you have to train your imagination also because to transform shame means that you have to imagine something else, some, a different condition. And to do that, if you have no imagination, it's very difficult because you can't get out of the shame pattern. So mm. the training of imagination is really maybe the most important thing because like when you are in a depression, you have very little imagination. You know, it, imagination is very disturbed. You you can't imagine a future. You are you are, you know, in this black hole of no imagination. So, you know, you have to work with that imaginative ability before you can actually transform shame. Because, you know, the the essence in shame is that there are no good mother in the shame scene. There's no one to tell you you are good enough just as you are. When someone is shaming you, you lose that good mother aspect inside you and you just withdraw from the other person or the other person so you get isolated in the same experience because the good mother is absent mm. so you know the, the the most important thing is to to imagine that good mother and and train her voice again inside it's so interesting to hear you say that because i feel that there's shame based we've got ideas of shame on the idea of the good mother and it often comes through phrases like that person has a mummy problem or a daddy problem and it's like well yeah they probably do and what's wrong with that because there's a lot of research on how that's how that's true uh, it is very interesting to hear you talk about and maybe it's very common i hadn't heard it before but using mythological stories and stories as roadmaps for healing yeah. is that a common practice yeah, that's my common practice okay but i think there's many Jungians. i don't know to use it just like that, but I think that there's a tradition within the Jungian psychology that to use mythology as a, as a description of human patterns in mm. general. I was aware of that. I just hadn't heard of stories being used as almost literal roadmaps. That's really interesting. Uh, yeah. what, what do you think of talk therapy? You know, I know getting therapy in some parts of the world is, it can feel a bit of a taboo in some parts of the world. Apparently in in Argentina, it's uh, a sign of wealth that you have many therapists, I was told. What's your attitude towards talk therapy? And how would you address the obstacle or barrier that someone might have where they're like, I don't want to just sit there and talk and have someone ask me questions back to me? Mm. Well, the problem with talk therapy, if it's only talk therapy, is that, you know, you have all your defenses there too. So whenever something exciting comes up that you are scared of, you will talk about something else and you may never talk about what is really important because you don't feel safe enough or you are you're seducing the other person to go somewhere else and you never really get to the point, isn't it? I mean, the, the language is so much left brain activity and so 
and I think all the feelings are in the right brain. So you, you that's why the arts are a very good way to reconnect to the right brain activity so that you can get access to what is really important. But the language is also important because, you know, you need both brains. Even the symbolic language is important, which is really very important because that connects to the language of the unconscious, the symbolic language, like imagination and, you know, stories and so forth. So I think both language and, and you know, arts, symbolical work in some way needs to reconnect. But today, you know, you, you have only the cognitive therapies who are really popular within the whole society and system. And everyone believes that cognitive therapy and mindfulness training and what so forth is the healing agent. But I think that's just bullshit. I mean, that's part of it, but it's only half. Yeah, I, you know what, I agree. And I'm not, not an expert. I did spend a couple of years doing a bit of meditation and, and yoga and it was great. But I also then turned a bit of that off and, and got into a more... Like, I, I started to do more art, more self-expression, and I found that really, really useful. I, I haven't done both at the same time for a long period of time. Well, a lot of what you're talking about, it sounds like it's about reconnecting the left brain to the right brain, to the body, to the collective unconscious, to dreams. Are we just, what, what's going on with the left brain? Why is it winning so much? I think it started with the enlightenment times where religion and science got separated completely. That was our mistake, wasn't it? I mean, we, we, we lost connection to body or we, we got stuck in body. I mean, this whole coming together again between mind and body and left, right brain and, you know, somehow, you know, through the history, we chose the left brain as our survivor instinct. I mean, this we thought this was how we could survive all the emotional traumas that was also part of life. So we, we moved there. And then we left something behind, you know, science has taken over all the fun in life and all the, you know, chaos, how to use chaos in a constructive way to give birth to something new and how to use darkness as something that can give birth instead of a depression that has to go away. And, you know, it's this attitude to, I think, the whole aspect of feeling in life that has got lost. Hmm. Um, have you have you worked with many people in your career who are doing full time creative work, writers, painters, art directors, designers, etc.? Some, yeah. Are they different? You know, how do you understand their problems and the way that their brains operate compared to people who are not full time doing creative work? Well, I think there may be some something left from the Freudian thinking that if you become too conscious about yourself you will lose creativity that was his mind because he thought all creative activity was based on sublimation and something that was really sexual energy but it just happened to come out in artwork so to find out what that artwork was was meant to you psychologically would mean that you didn't need to be creative and i think it's it's kind of it's still there this approach to using creativity as something that comes from your own inside, but it's actually the opposite if you, if you look at it from a Jungian aspect, because the more conscious you become of yourself, the deeper your creativity comes from. Then it doesn't just come from the personal unconscious, the traumas, the problems in life and so forth. It comes from the, all other resources, other spiritual powers that can transform and, you know, so... 
Yeah. Mm, it's interesting. So every, I do a bit of stream of consciousness writing and I, I tell this story at some of the talks that I do, but I, I had this one week where on Monday morning at 9am, a gentleman next to me had a seizure and I was on the ground awkwardly trying to help him not smash his head on the concrete. And I dreamt about my granddad all week. I was with him when he passed away and it was a really strange way to start the week. My dreams were strange. And then on the Friday of that week, I went back to the same place. It was in a cafe and I sometimes sit down and I ask myself a question and I write about it. And the question I was asking myself on that day was like, what, what am I doing? And the word neglect popped into my head before I'd even finished the question. What's going on in my brain for that to have happened? So you had an answer coming from inside, from your question. Yeah, what is that? What was the answer neglecting? Well, it kind of got me into the idea of, uh, I mean, I can talk about why I felt that way. It's obviously to do with, with parts of my life. Um, but then I started to think about why, what's the opposite of that? And to me, the opposite of that is creativity because through creativity, you have to pay attention to the world. You have to think about what you think. You put it out into the world. There's a feedback loop. You're sharing energy. And you know, just to play a simple game of what's the opposite of that, I was like, I think that's what I want to be about for the rest of my life and to not do that by myself, but to do it with other people. And so it's like, it led me to draw this pithy, not pithy, this trite, graph where I've got neglect and creativity on a one axis and then together and alone on another axis. And I'm like, I think my life's work is together and creativity. And those words aren't particularly interesting, but it means a lot to me. But that's a fantastic guiding you're getting from the unconscious just by asking the question, isn't it? This is what Jung talks about, active imagination. You ask a question and you get an answer. Yeah, and that's do you do you write a lot other than because I know you've written a lot of books, but do you write a lot? Because I I love the idea of writing where I've got a lamp with a white shade in front of me, and because you were talking about the tiger talking to you, I've been looking at this lamp as we've talked, and I'm like, oh my god, what if it's talking to me? What is it saying? And I feel I could write a page on that right now, and it'd be really really fun. Do you do a lot of that kind of writing yourself? Only in my mind. <laughs> But, you know, just to come back to what you were saying before, you know, in, in Parsifal, in the story of Parsifal, he's also supposed to ask a question, isn't it? He's coming to the Grail Castle and he forgets to ask the question that can save the whole kingdom, you know, the wounded fishing king, fisher king. He's a wounded and the only thing that can cure him is to ask the, the right question. But the reason why Parsifal forgets to ask the question is because his mother had told him that he shouldn't ask so many questions. <laughs> so, I think, so I think he that's left. So, that's so wonderful. Keep going, but that's so wonderful for a podcast about strategy for people who are supposed to ask questions and they sometimes go to work and people don't want them asking questions. I cut you off, but please continue. Yeah, well, then it took him 20 years before, and then he went out in life again, away from the Grail Castle, and then he worked as a, you know, knight for 20 years and so forth, and he became very tired, but he had a second chance, and he, again, he came back to the Grail Castle, and there he remembered to ask the question, and so the Fisher King was healed. So this asking the question became the solution to, to happiness, you know? to wholeness and to, you know, like good life quality, to ask the question. And I think we forget to ask questions. You know, we seek answers, but we don't ask questions. 
Yes. Well, we get awarded for answers. And I, I wrote down what you said earlier, where you have to know the answer before you speak. And that's not yeah. just in academia, that's everywhere. Yes. And most, most people don't know most answers to most questions. If they ask good questions, they shouldn't know the answer. So they should ask good questions, not know the answer. Love yeah. that and enjoy it because that's, that's yeah. the beauty of all kind of creative work. For Parsifal, he, he shouldn't have any answers. He should just ask the question, you know. And the question was, who does the grail serve? And that's the the holy grail, this Percival. Yeah. Uh, who does the grail serve? Interesting. Oh, two questions. Have you learned something about your study, your field of study in the past few years that changed the way you see your field? Well, I have some contrast in my life at the moment, I would say, personally, I I have a, a master, I would say, he's a, my teacher in, in meditation, and and I think the, the training that I like to do with, from him is opposite to creative processes, really, and that's my conflict, because it's to reflect on who it is that are creating, and so if I reflect too long there, I, I stop being creative, you know. <laughs> so I have to find a solution to that but well meditation and, and creative processes don't always go together but they are good one by one isn't it yeah I, I relate to what you're saying I, I think they're good for phases and you know if you practice some forms of mindfulness where your thoughts aren't you they're just visitors let them go don't be attached that's a good argument for not doing creative work yeah yeah, you can't be creative all the time. Of course, you have to, you know, go inside too and ask the questions. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of what you've read over the years isn't exactly science. You know, like we don't know where thoughts come from. We don't know where dreams come from scientifically. Are there any ideas like that that you hope get proven by science because you believe they will benefit a lot of people? Well, I hope there will be more research in the benefit of right brain activities. I think there are research that, you know, that science has proven that we need both brains in order to transform ourselves. The, the brain researchers have found that, but it doesn't reach the institutions, does it? There seem to be some contrast between research and findings there and the practical you know, therapy or helping, you know, in, in social institutions, they they don't take it in rightly. Yeah, I guess part of that's just most people are conservative. They want to drift through life. They don't want to change. But then you've got capitalism. I mean, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the science and the research into psychedelics and to new forms of therapy where there's interesting research, who's going to make money out of that? Yeah, that's the thing. Well, it's money that drives who does the research, isn't it? I mean, the, it's the cognitive therapy. They don't have better results than psychotherapy research, but they've done more research because there were more money, so they, they get more credit and they are more used. But if you look at the results in the research, they don't have better results, rather not. The, the, the psychotherapy seems to be more helpful than only cognitive therapy in the long run, so you, you know... If you really study the research, you have the right answers there, but they are just not used. Mm -hmm. 
All right, la- last question, and I, I don't want to bully you into a, a cheesy soundbite, but if you were talking to somebody in their mid-20s who's working really long hours, who's not sure what they're working for at times, they think they have to, they know they have to because they have college debt, they want to be more creative, they're not sure where to start, they're just trying to survive, they're trying to hang on while also climbing, but they just sense that something's you know, wrong, something's haunting them a little bit. Mm. Where do you start with somebody like that? What would you say to them? Well, first of all, in your 20s, you may think life is long, but it's really very short and you don't have to waste time. You have to enjoy what you're doing in, in life and not wait till you retire, you know. So you think to trust that when you follow whatever you like to do most, then you you will survive from that, you know, trust in your potentials. You shouldn't, you shouldn't go away from them and, and think you will survive better by following somebody else's expectations. So trust whatever makes you happy doing. I think this is the challenge we have, isn't it? And, and see how you can also make a living from what you like to do. I'm, I'm an example of that, I think, myself. So I can give that to somebody else. I was only in my 20s when I followed my what I wanted to do. Mm. So I think it's everyone can do it. I love it. Thank you so much for trusting me with this conversation. I really appreciate it. Where where can people find you on the internet? Well, the homepage, uh, Kunsttherapy, Art Therapy Denmark. I will be there, I think. You can find me. Awesome. I'll, uh, I'll add a link to the show notes for this. Um, thank you so much, Rebecca. I really appreciate your time today. You're welcome. Best wishes with everything. May you continue to help well, may you continue to find new stories for yourself and to help other people find new stories for them. Mm, thank you. Peace.